You are listening to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Well, as Britain hurtles towards what we think is Brexit Day, there is increasing chatter about Britain leaving the European Union with no deal. In fact, some commentators on the Brexit side, it must be said, have suggested that this is now the most popular uh, course of action among the public. We'll be looking at the numbers around a no-deal Brexit, what the public really thinks, and where we go from here. We'll also be taking some time on this podcast to dissect a bumper report on public opinion on Brexit by the think tank UK in a changing Europe. They've covered a wide range of topics in a sort of 50 to 60 page report and we'll be going over some of the edited highlights and what it teaches us about the current state of public opinion on Brexit. And to go over all of these numbers as usual, a fellow podcaster Leo Barassi. Leo, hello. Hello, Karen. So as I as I mentioned in that um, as I mentioned in that introduction, I've heard more than one Brexit commentator uh, to use that shorthand this week suggest that a no deal Brexit is not only desirable in in their uh, in their minds, but actually public opinion is is like swinging behind this, or it's the most uh, or, or it's the most popular it's the most popular sort of outcome among uh, among the public at the moment. I mean, do the numbers back that up? Yeah, I certainly heard Nadine Dorries uh, making this case on, I think it was the BBC's PM programme earlier this week. Um, And I think the way you framed it as it is the most popular option uh, in a very narrow sense is true. Um, There's not very much in it, but uh, when I heard her talking about it, she was referring to the ICM poll that came out um, around the start of the week that put a load of options to respondents um, in the context of of Parliament having voted down Theresa May's deal. And of those many options, the single that did best was No Deal, uh, which got 28%. Um, this wasn't the only poll that had done that. An opinion poll uh, carried out around the same time did something similar, slightly fewer options, and again got no deal as the highest with 24%. Uh, so individually, no deal does seem to be more popular than any of the other options. But, and it's a massive but, the problem is that doesn't mean that it's popular. It doesn't mean that it's becoming the public's favoured option, as I certainly heard it described. Uh, it's slightly more popular individually than any of the others, uh, but it's still, I think, consistently across various polls, you don't really see more than sort of 28, 29% at the most saying that they prefer it. Um, and this is really only what comes out in the long list of options. It still is much more unpopular than it is popular. Yes, and I've been looking at these uh, these opinion numbers, and um, so 24% say leave without a deal, 20% say government should get a better deal. Um, let me see, 22% say public vote on deal versus remain, 12% say general election, 9% say public vote on deal versus no deal. Um, opinion don't have an option just for remaining, uh, I'm not sure if um, ICM do. I haven't looked at that poll, but I mean, it, it paints a picture of a very fractured public in terms of um, the preferred next step. It's, it's certainly not how it's how it's presented. In fact, if I look at the opinion numbers, leave without a deal is only the preferred option of 45% of um, of leavers. So yeah, and I mean, there's a problem in that table that the option of gov should gov should uh, try and get a better deal is just. I mean, well, yeah, like. Of course, people want the government to get a better deal. Uh, if anything, I'm surprised that it's low as that. I think uh, realistically, that should be 
uh, taken out um, in terms of in terms of what's seriously on the table here. And um, I guess a more useful poll would be endpoints, essentially um, uh, through the three-way option, I think, which is realistically what's on the table here. Yes, and I think that one of the things that we were talking about off air, weren't we, is that just because you have a preferred course of action doesn't mean that it's the only course of action you'll tolerate. Um, looks like Matt Singh's got some polling out, which is on a takes this on a different uh, takes this issue on a, in a different way, doesn't it? And looks at what's acceptable versus unacceptable, and that gives us almost a totally different perspective. Yeah, so this was really surprising, and actually, I think it's a poll that deserves to get a lot more attention than it has. It's it's one of those polls that I think um, if politicians are to truly be seeking to represent public opinion as i think in this case many of them are now really working hard to claim that they do then i think this is a poll that should be uh central in a lot of people's minds um what it did and this was number cruncher politics to be clear um certainly it asked uh, what's your preferred option and in fact it it did what we just talked about and uh just narrowed it down to proposed deal without a deal and remain in the eu and here you see that no deal um only comes in the middle and gets 29 percent. so actually when you narrow it down to just those three then remain in the eu is the most popular but the sort of unique bit of the poll was what followed that where those three options people were asked acceptable or unacceptable now sort of before talking about the results that i think we should remember that we've often seen polls that have put people uh, through a kind of a forced choice um elimination contest where they pick their first choice and their second choice um and mayseal doesn't do very well with that because it's not many people's first choice so it tends to be eliminated first if you have a, a three-way contest with elimination and again and that's what would happen with the numbers in the first question here but if you don't do an elimination and you just ask people acceptable or unacceptable then quite strikingly and quite clearly by some distance um, maze deal is the one that has the biggest lead for acceptable versus unacceptable so it's 49 acceptable 30 unacceptable so plus 19 um, the other two, leave without a deal, is only plus six, and remain in the EU is only plus seven. And and actually, um, the proposed deal is also the only one that has a plurality of both remainers and leavers saying that they'd find it acceptable. So I think counterintuitively, sort of against the what what we've taken from from these polls that have um, done elimination contests, because they're very heavily weighted towards first choice. I think what this poll shows is how strongly the fact that the deal is many people's second choice can mean that a lot of people can live with it. And I suppose what this tells me is that you know, if the government can get people to look beyond their first choice, then it may have a winner. But how it does that is going to be very difficult, isn't it? I mean, it's a bit like a sort of conflict somewhere in the world where um, if both sides think they can win in that conflict, like a war or something, then it carries on. Whereas if both sides have concluded um, that they can't and it's like a stalemate, then yeah, that's where you can find a peace deal and compromise. And maybe that's not the appropriate metaphor. I appreciate this isn't war. Um, but there's something in that once you've kind of reached a deadlock and sort of a war of attrition and people are sort of fed up fighting, then you know you reach a compromise. But it's just how how to get people in Parliament, and ultimately it is MPs in Parliament that will decide this, how to get them in that mindset, particularly in the ERG and DUP, 
which still seems like the most likely path to getting a majority, maybe not. Um, is anybody's guess? I guess the uh, thing that potentially changes um, the stalemate in Parliament now is the the set of amendments uh, that are about to come up and vote. And it's not quite the way you described it there, of both sides realising that they can't win, but potentially one of the sides realising that they might be quite close to losing. So if if an amendment does go through that essentially makes the options that are on the table, May's deal or a second referendum, then... I guess that's a situation where you could potentially see quite a lot of the more ardent Brexiteers uh, deciding that they're better served by supporting Maysfield. And I think, to my surprise, this this question does, I think, provide quite a bit of evidence that actually the public are more inclined to go along with, go along with it than might might be widely thought. Mm. And I think that having said having said all of this, I think if we look at the parliamentary math. Um, this, you know, it's it's also easy to see how Britain could leave without without a deal almost by accident if everyone assumes it will all be all right on the night eventually, and there's a sort of game of brinkmanship that nobody thinks their side's going to lose, and then all of a sudden we crash out. I mean, I know people dispute that based on the idea that Parliament can take control and prevent no deal, but I mean, it, it's going to be fraught, I think, in Parliament to see who wins this game of chicken. Um, looking back at the numbers in this in this report that I mentioned up front, UK and a changing Europe um, uh, have produced. They looked at this idea of what does no deal mean. This is something that Will Jennings um, from University of Southampton has been uh, mentioning um, a, f- a bit on Twitter, saying, "Well, what does what does the public understand no deal to be?" And this report looks at both the views of MPs and voters. And it talks about queues at lorries, four of the pound, medical supply shortages, flight cancellations. Um, de- substantial declines in house prices, and the report refers to this as you know how how concerned are you about these things? It's not actually how the the wording of the question um, is presented. It says how likely, if at all, do you think the following would be to happen if there was a no deal Brexit? And it's a top two box, very likely or fairly likely. Now, there's a couple of interesting things here. The first is that MPs seem to be, um, you know, think all of those uh, points that I've mentioned are more likely to happen uh, than voters do. Um, I won't go through every number, but to give you an example, you know, 50% of MPs think there'll be medical supply shortages versus 34% of voters. Um, I'll, I'll pick another one. Um, let's see. Uh, queues at lorries at port. Queues of lorries at ports. Um, 71% of MPs think that will happen. 62% of voters. And people can read the report to go through all the numbers. I don't think it really lends itself to audio too well to just read out loads of random numbers. But um, that 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 struck me as something that I thought was. Um, uh, interesting that MPs seem to be uh, not, not if not more, nor more, if not more concerned, as the report suggests, but um, more pessimistic uh, that some negative things will happen. But actually, some of the reasons behind that, uh, behind underneath those numbers, um, might explain why. So, what we see is that Remainers tend to think negative outcomes are more likely to happen than Leavers, and of course, um, MPs in Parliament, at least in the Brexit vote, you know, were more likely to have voted Remain. So, I think there might be a Remain. There is a remain leave dynamic in how people interpret um, no deal, and obviously Parliament being that bit more remainy, literally in terms of how they voted at the time, than the general public might be one of the reasons why MPs uh, are more sort of pessimistic about no deal than voters. At the same time, it's not quite that simple because when we look at um, the, the opinion of leave MPs, they 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 seem less likely than leave voters 
to, to see negative consequences in a no deal. Um, so I'll pick one example. Um, flight cancellations. Only 2% of Leave MPs thought that would happen in a no deal Brexit versus 15% of um, Leave voters. On the flip side, um, Remain MPs seem more likely to think uh, sort of very pessimistic uh, things will happen than Remain voters. And I won't go through the numbers again because it's audio, but it seems that MPs are more polarised on the outcomes of no deal than the voters themselves, which I just thought uh, was a really striking um, important sort of uh, element of uh, public opinion and opinion of MPs to, to look at. Yeah, and I guess in a way it sort of reflects what um, you kind of get from psychology that um, let's assume that compared with the general public, MPs tend to be more engaged with the topic and have a more clear sense of their own views. Uh, so they're probably more likely to identify as Remain supporters or Leave supporters than an average member of the public. And we know from psychology that if people have this sense of, of clear identity about themselves and are quite clear about what they view, what they think about the topic, they're more likely to accept evidence that supports their view and more likely to reject anything that opposes their view. So sort of perhaps counterintuitively against the idea of kind of MPs being experts on topics, I suppose what this points to is the potential for them being perhaps more polarised and more blinkered on the topic than, um, than would be ideal, which I guess is kind of what um, the Stella Creasy amendment that's, that's going up at the moment uh, for a People's Assembly on Brexit, I guess that's what it's getting at, the idea that MPs are now so entrenched in their position, which I think is sort of reflected in these numbers, that you're not going to get any kind of agreement. I mean, certainly not consensus, but probably not even a, a clear majority for anything. So what you need is people who have sort of spent less time thinking about it, who are less entrenched and unwilling to accept contradictory evidence to come and, and have a fresh look at it. Whether or not that goes ahead, I'm uh, very sceptical, but um, I, I guess this sort of points to the value of that kind of exercise. Mm. I suppose going back to what we were talking about earlier, if, if a good chunk of Leave MPs genuinely don't see some of these um, more cataclysmic sort of effects of no deal as being incredible, then it makes it harder to see how they do end up in that compromise position on May's deal, doesn't it? If they just if they genuinely don't think that no deal is going to be that bad. Well, well, yeah, I mean, you refer to it as a game of chicken, but the thing about a game of chicken is in the sort of image of two cars driving head on towards each other, neither of them want the crash. I don't think it's the right analogy here because one of, one of the car, one of the drivers is actually looking forward to the crash. Yeah, or doesn't think they'll get hurt. Um, let's move on to some other things in the report. So it's a really, um, this, this UK and a changing Europe report, which I do recommend people look at because it's, it's collated lots of uh, chapters of different sort of aspects of, of Brexit. Some public opinion, some, as I've mentioned, opinion of party members, uh, which we've talked about with Tim Bale, um, the opinion of MPs, as I've mentioned, but also not just in the UK overall, but in Scotland and uh, Northern Ireland and places like that as well. Um, I wanted to talk a bit about this idea of um, party identity versus Brexit identity, but I can't get there without talking a bit about um, polling on a second referendum. Uh, John Curtis, Sir John, I should say, has uh, done a short chapter looking at polling on a second referendum. And really, I mean, he's reiterated um, things that he said before, and I think we've talked about before on this podcast, which is that ultimately uh, the numbers uh, you get on a second referendum or people's vote uh, do depend on, well, kind of what I've alluded to there, how how you position them in a poll question. So Sir John's put together a table here 
where he's looked at all voters, those that voted remain in 2016, those that voted leave in 2016, and he's done like a net support uh, for uh, for a second referendum in different uh, versions of the question wording. And what he's found is that when you have um, the words public vote, final vote, people's vote, and you don't necessarily mention uh, the prospect of remain, you get much larger degrees of support for a second referendum than if you use that word, uh, referendum, or if you put the prospect of um, remaining after all um, in the question wording. Now, this is not new news, um, but it's worth reinforcing because I didn't quite appreciate that there were still ways of asking this question um, that gave you a sort of a negative net score. So to give you an example of the absolute the, the, the question that polled worst, and I'm sort of deliberately picking this one to make the point. Um, YouGov had a question in uh, the 7th and 8th of January with the, the fieldwork. In principle, do you think there should or should not be a new referendum held on whether Britain should leave the European Union or remain as a member? Um, 36 supported that, 49 opposed. That's a minus 13 score. So you can still get um, underwater, as it were, on support for a second referendum, depending on how you phrase it. Um, but the big difference, and the table makes this very clear, is in what leave voters think. Remain voters typically are about plus 50-odd percent in their support um, for a second referendum, almost regardless. I mean, it's not exclusive, but almost regardless of how you ask the question, leavers obviously vary, I guess, depending on how much they see Brexit as imperiled. But I mean, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this today, Leo, because we've talked about it before, but it does go to... What it says to me, I'll get your opinion, what it says to me is that it's really unclear how... Um, strong support is for a second referendum um, or people's vote, depending on how you want to call it. Um, because, you know, when you've got these wildly different numbers, depending on how you ask the question, very, very hard for me to see how such a proposition, should Labour make it, let's say, lots of intense debate there, would meet um, the enemy, as it were, in a sort of political debate where it has a rebuttal and, you know, these arguments are going to be countered. So w what do you make of some of these numbers? So, firstly, I think the thing that I'm finding quite frustrating on this at the moment is because of all these different wordings, there's very little good tracking of how this is changing over time. Um, uh, YouGov had previously been the agency who was asking it in, in the same way over quite a long period, and that was showing a slow and inconsistent but certainly discernible shift towards the idea that there should be. Uh, unfortunately, as far as I can tell, they haven't updated those numbers for a few months. So we sort of stopped having uh, the ability to see whether public opinion is shifting towards a referendum or not, which is quite frustrating and sort of um, uh, missing one of the key things that would be useful to kind of cut across this noise of all the different wording. Um, on this question of sort of we can't tell what the public think, I guess in a way I feel like it. I'm not convinced that's even the right question because it sort of implies that the public actually think anything on this. And I just don't think that people generally have a settled view on this. And um, what this is showing is that there isn't sort of some um, some ideal view that, that people have on whether whether or not, they, whether or not there should be uh, another vote. Um, and we're sort of struggling to work out what people think. People simply don't know. They don't think about it much. And so when you sort of put the question to them, it's it, they are entirely reflecting what they think, which is not much about it. And so it comes up and it, it, a lot of people are very flexible about it. Now, of course, I'm characterizing is probably actually what's going on here is two thirds of people do have quite a settled view. And then there's a third in the middle who are swinging depending on how the question's asked. Well, yeah, but if, if we look at this table, it seems to be the leave voters that change their mind based on how you frame the question. Um, and 
okay, let's say Labour, because this is this has been the intense debate recently, hasn't it? What what should Labour do on this? You know, Jeremy Corbyn under um, lots of pressure on this so far. Does not seem like he wants to call a second referendum or call for a people's vote. People like David Lammy on the flip side have suggested that the Labour Party could split um, over this issue. But if Leave voters can be, uh, I guess, more amenable to a referendum if it's called a people's vote and the, the, the prospect of Remain isn't in the wording, I'm not sure how persuaded I am by those numbers because surely the day after or the day that Labour comes out in support of a people's vote, the opponents of it say, OK, you want to cancel Brexit then, don't you? And surely then that immediately frames the question in the more negative light that we've seen elsewhere in that grid. I guess the point I'm making is um, for the listeners is that you might have the perfect framing of a particular policy position. On this, in this instance, we're talking about a second referendum. could be on other things. But you're going to have a rebuttal at some point in the um, cut and thrust of political debate. And I suppose what we don't know, and we can't know on this podcast, is how that but rebuttal and counter-rebuttal would play out in the real world. But I suppose I'd be nervous if I was on the people's vote side that, okay, Labour come out for one, but then, you know, is, is the Labour Party going to be vulnerable at the pushback? So I hear what you're saying, and there's certainly... That's, by the way, that's not me advocating one way or another. I'm just putting purely on the numbers perspective. Anyway, go on, Leo. Right. There are people who are... There are journalists who are... Um, getting uh, getting sort of angsty about the term people's vote and saying this is like this is a a silly loaded campaigning term how can you use it and yeah of course it's a campaigning term but so was the the term bedroom tax and that became entirely accepted so is the term pro-life meaning anti-abortion um, and that's become completely accepted. These campaigning terms do get framed and do get won as the accepted framing that people are using so I wouldn't I wouldn't go go in here saying that you you can't win a framing with a sort of loaded interpretation of something as this this being the way that it's it's widely understood and widely interpreted. Um, I think on the sort of the wider Labour point and kind of what what this would mean. Um, I mean, looking at those leave numbers of the proportion who would back it the sort of the range is between 10 percent and 28 percent of leave voters would back it i think what's important there or what needs to be done to really answer your question what it means for labor is to look at who those leave voters are is that 10 to 28 percent the leave voters who would support labor anyway mm, good point. um like how many of the 45 to 80 percent of leave voters who are always opposing uh, another vote were were they ever voting Labour anyway, um, and also and I think I think I've seen some work on this a while back. For a lot of a lot of Labour Leave voters, Europe is just not a salient issue. They might say they don't support a, a, another vote on it, but they don't actually care that much. So even if in principle they oppose it when they're asked, it might not be that threatening for Labour. But honestly, from these numbers, I don't think we can tell that for sure. I think that's that's the question that needs to be asked here. The, the debate will rumble on, no doubt. Um, final topic for this week's podcast was on this um, a chapter by Jeff Evans and Florian Schaffner, I think it is. Uh, hopefully I've pronounced that correctly. Which looked at um, a party identity, uh, so identity with the political parties in Britain, versus identity with leave versus remain and um this uh chapter stood out for me because in the in the press release um that that, that was published um there was this headline that said only one in 16 people did not have a brexit identity while more than one in five said they had no party identity and what this suggested 
um, was actually that you know we're our politics is being redefined on remain versus leave grounds, and that actually you know party identity is secondary um, to that. And it's a real, it's a real uh, uh, philosophical and really important thing to try and get our heads around as we look at sort of how politics is being defined uh, in sort of the, in the, uh, going into the mid twenty first century. So I was looking at how, sort of how they reached this conclusion because I thought it, um, and it was using uh, data from the British election study. And there was a question that says, in the EU referendum debate, do you think of yourself as closer to either the Remain or Leave side? So I'll repeat that again, because I think that's important. In the EU referendum debate, do you think of yourself as closer to either the Remain or Leave side? And then the write-up says this was accompanied by a series of probes into what you know Brexit identity might mean for social, emotional, behavioural sort of characteristics. And then the same thing was asked um, of, of the political uh, parties uh, as, as well. Okay, so that sounds interesting. So I guess the sort of naive reading of it is if there is a split in the parties now, then the sort of natural way for them to realign would be to reforge themselves around kind of a leave party and and a remain party. Um, I don't know what does that does that make sense? Well, it would be the the sort of immediate ramifications if you take these numbers at face value. Um, There's a few things to to mull over. I think when we look at some of these numbers. So if it's only sort of five or six percent that are saying that they don't identify with either leave or remain, we probably should think a bit about um, how that compares with the fact that actually 28% didn't vote in the Brexit vote itself. So what that suggests is that people are developing leave or remain identities, even if they um, didn't vote in that referendum. I suppose the, the question wording of that, that bit that they have published, which says, do you think of yourself as closer to either remain or leave, um, is quite important because it's an important identity that these people have, but it doesn't necessarily mean that whether we leave or remain in the European Union become is, is the most important thing to them. It's like it is very much an identity beyond um, Europe policy. Um, so I suppose, uh, why, why is that important? Well, it's important because you know, you're still getting people that voted Leave that vote Labour, and you're still getting people that voted Remain vote Conservative. So it might, you know, these numbers might superficially say that party identity is sort of weaker than Leave or Remain identity. But in the general election that we saw in 2017, support for the two main parties increased. Um, and people do seem to be happy at the moment uh, voting for parties that don't necessarily support their view on Brexit. And maybe that's because people can simultaneously hold a party identity and a leave versus remain identity. And, and for some people, uh, for who this isn't the the most important thing to them, um, you know, they're, they're quite comfortable um, doing that. And like, you could also make the aside, by the way, as an aside, you could also make the point that, well, if, if remain's really important, why haven't the Lib Dems surged? Um, so I, in a way, I guess kind of what we're getting at here is that it sort of reflects the uh, the kind of Paula Surridge argument that um, politics has also this uh, liberal authoritarian axis, which we should be considering as uh, salient, as similarly salient to perhaps uh, the left right axis. Um, there's a there's a helpful table in this same report that that looks at the division um, of politics on on that axis as well. I mean, one of the clear things is that liberals of both the left and the center were overwhelmingly remain voters and liberals of the right were fairly evenly split so uh, whereas authoritarians of all sides were fairly uh, were all strongly um, leave voters so mm. 
yeah, so it's sort of as you say, it's not this kind of leave remain identity doesn't doesn't need to be uh, so much just purely sort of are you uh, do you want to leave or remain? It's politics about that, but it's sort of it's the potential further polarization of politics around a kind of liberal internationalism versus a local nationalism. And it's you know it's hard to see. I think that what we what I'd like to see, and this is great work. But what I'd like to see is more on which identity is the most important to you, right? Because there can be a bit of a chicken and egg situation. You know, you're a leaver because you voted leave in the referendum, but then you voted leave in the referendum for other cultural reasons, perhaps that made you amenable uh, to doing that. One of the things that we noticed as an aside in, in previous episodes of the podcast, going back to the Europe point, specifically policy on Brexit, is that the public was split a third, a third, a third on how strongly they felt that on remaining, leaving, or whether they were not neutral, but sort of soft either way. So, I mean, we've got to be careful about over-interpreting this. And that's quite important if you think that they're suddenly going to become a remain and leave party in Britain. Maybe there won't be because not everyone cares as much about this. Right. The idea the of, put, of like imagining that the public are kind of in, in two implacably opposed blocks with with no meeting in the middle. I mean, that's certainly, I think, not not what you can take from these numbers. I mean, what if the other uh, kind of concerns here is... Um, if you're comparing it to sort if if you're trying to make the argument that that we were just getting at it the sort of this is liberal versus sort of liberal authoritarian versus economic axis that's not really what this question is doing because it's it's liberal uh, leave remain versus the established parties those established parties have leaders they have names they have histories they have wars that they've started or tuition fee votes that they've reneged on um, in the end they have a baggage that leave remain doesn't have for um, to such an extent so um it's not that saying that politics is entirely going to refound along those lines it's simply saying that the parties themselves also have problems so it might be that actually if the parties were to split and to reform they would still have to reform in something that has the same kind of electoral blocks and electoral positioning you might still need a social democratic um leavish uh, sorry remainish party you might still need a kind of christian democratic uh leavish party and in the end you might go through all this trouble and politics ends up not looking all that different afterwards because the electoral blocks are there for a reason. Hmm. I mean, I do think this idea of hierarchy of identities is going to be something that I would encourage everyone, I hope to look look into this further as well myself, but I would encourage everyone to look into um, further as well because one of the things I always talk about when you look at um, voting intention polling when it comes out is people seem to be much more inclined to look at things like age as dividing lines in um, British politics at the moment and I have a, I have a sort of theory that part of that's because like age is one of the first cross breaks in every poll that's published whereas one that is maybe on page two or three of the cross breaks and sometimes isn't published because the sample isn't based on this is housing tenure uh, for example, so whether you're a renter or whether you're a, you know, you've bought your house with a mortgage or you're paying a mortgage at the moment. And I suppose it's very easy to find articles that say, oh, it's all about age now uh, rather than social class. Um, it's harder to find articles that say, well, actually, housing is really important. Housing tenure is really important. I mean, those articles do exist. A friend of the show, Matt Singh, talked about this a lot and other people have um, as well. But I suppose we just got to be very careful about remain versus leave becoming the only way we view politics when actually there are lots of other major divides based on things that maybe aren't talked about as much. 
Anyway, that's all we've got time for this week's uh, Political Betting Polling Matters podcast. Big thanks to Leo Brassi, as ever, for joining me. That may be the uh, last podcast for a couple of weeks. We're not quite sure what we're doing in the next couple of weeks. Um, for those of you that don't follow me on Twitter, I'm off to join Ipsos Mori in the public affairs team, uh, working on uh, some of this stuff, actually, uh, po- politics and public opinion. So there's going to be a little bit of a gap between uh, my current role and my new role, which involves me <laughs> giving away my laptop. But uh, So we're going to be trying to figure out how we uh, cover the podcast in the in uh, sort of time before I join there in early February. Um, I'm sure there'll be things to talk about in the meantime. But if you do like what you hear for the podcast, regardless of all that stuff, uh, do share us on social media. Give us a like, comment, you know, rate us on Facebook and all the podcast apps and all the rest of it. Uh, it really does help share the uh, share the podcast with others and get our names out there, which we very much appreciate. But for now, thanks for listening and have a good rest of your week.